This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. My name is Anir Bal. I'm a historian and teacher of history. In this podcast, uh, I explore unfamiliar histories of familiar people and places. This is a new episode. Since it is a podcast by someone who studies and teaches history for uh, a living as a vocation, it is time to address really a sensitive issue. There is often a complaint these days that uh, Professional historians write and speak in a language that is too technical for the ordinary individual. The average curious reader sometimes feels alienated by the highly technical language of professional historian. It is pointless to debate whether or not the, the historians can write in a language that um, excites or that depresses the ordinary reader. But there is uh, really something about this that calls for uh, popular attention. There are historians who can indeed write in a language that's accessible to the common people. Let us recall such a historian today. Not the least because he recently passed away on January the 17th, 2021. India lost a distinguished historian of medieval India, Professor Sunil Kumar, who taught history in Delhi University and edited the journal Indian Economic and Social History Review, fell to a lung disorder. He was 64. Tributes poured in from across the world. His colleagues and students recalled his enduring scholarship on society and politics during the Delhi Sultanate and his tireless nurturing of young students and scholars. But an aspect of Professor Kumar's scholarship that calls for our attention immediately as laymen interested in history is his uh, special interest in the Sultanate era monuments of Delhi. As a long-time resident of South Delhi, Kumar often went to some of these monuments. These monuments were often located in obscure villages. The monuments were noticed and highlighted. But these villages, some of which had been in occupation well before the monuments around them started to be built, um, were rarely noticed. People spoke and referred to these monuments, but rarely referred to the sites where they were located, to the present condition of the sites where these monuments were located. It was as if Monuments, these old antique monuments, stood independent of uh, these obscure villages. 
Kumar would take his colleagues and students often to these monuments and introduce them to their origin and subsequent changes in their careers. His walking tours of Meherauli and Tughlaqabad areas with Kumar over the years acquired a legendary status in the memory of colleagues and students. Professor Tanika Sarkar, for instance, observed that when Kumar spoke about these monuments, it appeared as though every brick was coming alive. Yet, Kumar was not merely a tour guide. His knowledge about these monuments did not come from secondary reading or from apprenticeship with travel industry professionals. He was primarily an academic historian. He had mastered Persian and Urdu. He had read contemporary sources for the Delhi Sultanate and published well-received books and papers. Of course, he also taught and supervised students. As an academic historian who also conducted heritage walks, even if informally, Kumar was a rare commodity. He appeared to bridge the gap, which is widely felt, between the academic historian who focuses on research, teaching and publishing for peers on the one hand, and the layperson with a healthy interest in the past, on the other hand, the layperson with interest but without any systematic training in the methods of history. Now, Kumar would closely study the present carriers of past monuments. He would observe the ways in which Sultanate-era monuments were remembered or made sense to individuals and communities in later times. Holding up these later histories of these monuments against the original purpose or ambition behind their construction, Kumar would put together a biography of these monuments over the centuries. This biography differed from the usual format of biographies in the sense that it did not chronicle the birth, maturity, or and the eventual disappearance of a monument as we do it for human lives. Instead, his kind of biography recalled the survival of these monuments across centuries amid changing perceptions and conditions around them. This approach offered several advantages. First, it would now be clear that monuments have a history beyond stories of their construction and subsequent decay or ruin. Second, the life of these monuments was now connected with its surrounding, their surrounding, including climate and communities around them. Third, this connection in turn made clear that survival of heritage monuments, for instance, involves multiple stakeholders, including those 
who live around it in the present and those who visit them in the hope of experiencing or touching a slice of a remote past as though standing before old monuments somehow make centuries disappear as if the monuments alone somehow revives a lost past for a few rare moments in the present. This romantic expectation that the primary concern for heritage professionals is to restore monuments to their original shape, to maximize their appeal to the tourist, or to offer them a live experience of a lost past. This romantic experience leaves out several stakeholders and their histories. Fourth, but before I go to the fourth, let me remind you that Kumar brought back some of those ignored stakeholders in the way he wrote and thought about the history of these monuments. Fourth, such complex histories of past monuments offer to the visitors lessons, important lessons on how to approach questions about the past in a more critical and reasonable manner. Such approaches encourage professional historians and students to research and write in an accessible manner. In a manner that appeals to an audience beyond the academic community of peers. Sunil Kumar, of course, has left eloquent traces of this distinctive approach to studying the career of uh, Sultanate-era constructions in Delhi. He left it in a collection of essays, which is called uh, The Present in Delhi's Pasts. It was published in 2002, that's nearly 20 years ago, by a publisher called Three Aces Collective, uh, which is a niche publication house based in Delhi. Uh, all the essays except uh, one were originally published in academic journals, yet uh, all of them are eminently readable by the laymen and anyone interested in Delhi monuments. Uh, indeed, you are strongly advised to pick up a copy Kumar uh, saw these monuments uh, first as a student and, and young scholar. He used to cycle to these uh, with his then girlfriend, uh, who later married him. Still later, he went back to them many times as a father, as a researcher, and as a teacher. He would wonder if it was possible to connect the obscure villages, which now uh, hosted these ruins with the history of these constructions. During his long association with uh, these monuments, he would see the landscape around the structures change. Structures and landscape uh, around these monuments changed over the last 50 or so years, over the last 40 years. 
that Kumar had been observing these monuments. He died at 64. He'd been going to them since he was a student in his late teens. Along the way, he was no longer a historian or no longer exclusively a historian of medieval India, visiting old ruins, but uh, he became an observer and chronicler of the present, noting and recording changes in those villages. He would wonder why these villages uh, did not themselves attract any interest or of visitors, pilgrims, or of uh, scholars who wrote about some of these monuments. Indeed, uh, these villages around the Sultanate era monuments were themselves monuments too. They too had seen uh, lives and afterlives of prosperity or decline. They would have seen old residents migrating and new ones moving in. Kumar had been looking to find a way to study the history of these monuments without erasing the history of these villages where they were located. So he resolved in his work to write a history of human habitation in South Delhi along with these monuments. To him, this, this conjoined or combined history appeared richer and more democratic in promise. The first essay uh, about which we'll have uh, plenty to, to think about in today's podcast is called Kutub and Modern Memory. It crips the reader's attention in the very first paragraph. Kumar notices a contrast between the visitor's first impression about Kutub Minar and its adjacent Friday mosque, which is also the oldest such mosque in Delhi. While Kutub, with its gigantic height, tapering minaret, and inscriptions, immediately cause wonder and admiration. The mosque beside it, built with scraps from demolished Hindu and probably Jain temples, indirectly stokes memories of conflict, of force and destruction. Now, these contrasting impressions are not born of chance. They do not happen to the visitor entirely accidentally. They are a result, really, these contrasting impressions about the Qutub, the, the Minar, and the mosque beside it. Um, they are a result of a process through which meanings have been read into monuments, or intentions were assigned to those who built them. Now, once this assigned meanings had been around for long enough, say a few hundreds of years, at least a hundred years, uh, these meanings uh, begin to be considered normal and obvious. Kumar discovered along the way uh, that many meanings were assigned 
several meanings were assigned to the Qutub complex in the past by several historical actors. And yet, only one of them appears natural or obvious to the contemporary observer. He resolved to examine how popular perceptions or presumptions around a historical monument change over time. He looked closely at how knowledge about this monument circulates among visitors. Typically, the Archaeological Survey of India abstracts information, sources them, collects them, information about monuments from the work of historians. Yet, historians rarely write on these monuments exclusively. They write on larger questions such as Islam, religion, or medieval Indian politics, or society. Now, archaeological survey isolates information from such works. This process of isolation and then the, the placement of such isolated pieces of information next to these monuments creates its own complications. The isolated information is usually, often, the only piece of information on the monuments available to the average visitor. Think of the stone uh, slab next to a monument on which a brief introduction about the monument is written. This is a typical practice uh, found among uh, practically all major monuments in India. That's the standard style of uh, introducing the visitor to uh, major archaeological survey sponsored monuments. Let's now go back to uh, some history in terms of chronology. And let's return to the Friday mosque beside the Qutub Minar. Uh, Qutub Minar and the Friday Mosque. Uh, the Friday Mosque beside the Qutub Minar really was built, indeed uh, built with uh, material assembled from the ruins of various Shaivite, Vaishnavite and Jain temples. When the literature by the Archaeological Survey of India mentions that the mosque was erected on the plinth of a demolished temple, it strengthens really an impression of violent displacement. Ironically, it may indirectly encourage the visitors to assume that the iron pillar of the Gupta era, which sits adjacently, too was a product of a similar plunder by Muslim invaders. On the other hand, Several additions were later made to the mosque compounds, which were much larger in size. And uh, at its peak, the mosque looked like uh, the Jama Masjid of uh, Northern Delhi today, uh, the structure that is quite familiar 
to uh, many pilgrims in India and uh, the world. So these additions, the later additions gave in, fell away really, thanks to the caprices of the climate, they broke down, they aren't not, they aren't there anymore, they aren't, aren't uh, around, they simply uh, disappeared thanks to uh, damage as a matter of fact. If they were visible today, the mosque could bear a lesser association with violence or plunder. Kumar believed that Sultan Iltutmish, who commissioned uh, these, uh, these additions, did not simply build on or complete an older or unfinished structure. He effectively changed it, he altered it. Likewise, uh, the alterations or modifications, additions by uh, Iltutmish uh, bear no contemporary trace. They aren't there today. They don't survive. Likewise, uh, little or no evidence, trace survives of the additions made to the mosque by another sultan some years later. Alauddin Khalji made additions and neither none really of those additions survive. Archaeological evidence shows that he had enlarged the mosque to a size double the time of Iltutmish. At its prime, the mosque was several times higher and larger. It was fronted by the imposing Alai Darwaza and a huge courtyard. It boasted of intricate calligraphy of uh, Quranic verses on its walls and screens and of an elaborate eulogy of Alauddin. The structure would have been as imposing as any grand mosque anywhere in the, in the world, really. Unfortunately, the only part that survives bears more eloquent traces of conflict. The parts that fail away bore a greater imprint of architectural accomplishment and would be more likely to strike the visitor with awe and wonder. Kumar writes, and I quote, In sheer size and grandeur, it would have been one of the most prepossessing mosques of its time in the world. Unquote. Kumar here shows that what did not survive influences the visitors no less than what survives. Since the 19th century, let us, let us move uh, forward by several centuries uh, and welcome another uh, dimension of, of the problem. Since the 19th century, I was saying, uh, many historians have studied and published about the Qutub complex. Note that uh, I'm using the word Qutub complex, not simply Qutub Minar, uh, although the structure and the place today is known as the Minar as though Minar is the only uh, striking uh, 
exhibit in that place. So what happened? How did the complex become a minar in our perception? It has something to do with how historians have uh, written about this monument and about the ways archaeological survey of India has abstracted some of those um, pieces of information about the monument. We'll come to that. So Sayyid Ahmad Khan, who was the Munsif of Delhi, carried out the first detailed study of the inscriptions and archaeological form of the Friday Mosque during the 1840s. His observations were published in journals. Much of it was recompiled by the ASI under the care of J.A. Page during the 1920s. This corpus of publications was the core material on the basis of which a consensual opinion evolved, a consensual opinion evolved over the mosque. The guides prepared, the guide books prepared for British tourists during the early 20th century uh, were prepared on the basis of this body of scholarly works. The scholars who published between 1840s and 1920s set in motion a basic range of questions to be asked about the mosque and a basic model of explanation and interpretation about it. The work made a direct connection between the material used for construction and the explicit objective of the ruler who commissioned it. They paid greater attention to the inner sanctum of the mosque built during the earliest phase of construction with a view to show that Kutubuddin Aibeg was keen to make a statement of conquest and hegemony over an infidel population. They believed that the mosque was conceived as a means to ritually cleanse or purify a profane territory. It appeared to them to be an imprint, a symbol, a trace of the might of Islam. Sayyid Ahmad Khan in particular emphasized the fact that the mosque was called Kuvat ul Islam or the might of Islam. Now, that was a surprising assertion, noted Sunil Kumar. Surprising assertion because uh, that name, Kuvat ul Islam, that name is not found in any existing inscription or in any Sultanate era chronicle. There is simply no contemporary document which calls that mosque Kuvat ul Islam. Yet to these early scholars, it seemed fitting 
that a mosque celebrating the conquest of Delhi should be called the might of Islam. They believe that the takeover of Delhi was the final step, really, in a series of raids by Islamic invaders since the capture of Sindh in the 8th century. Now, it is useful to remember that when they had been writing, medieval India used to be known as the Muslim period in Indian history. The nomenclature was informed by a basic assumption that uh, the expansion of the Muslim power or authority was the most definitive characteristic of this period. Muslim period. That was the scholars who wrote between uh, 1840s and uh, 1920s. Another bunch of scholars wrote on the mosque compound during the 1960s. This new bunch of scholars were influenced by a more quote-unquote secular outlook. They paid far less emphasis on the might of Islam angle and instead held up the gradual Hindu adaptation of architectural features, uh, such as the Saracenic Dome, as an instance of intercommunal harmony. They wrote of the ways uh, Hindu craftsmen gradually picked up the skills to create Islamic architectural patterns. They paid greater attention to the presence of Hindu hands in the design and construction of the compound. Still later, during the 1990s, scholars such as Anthony Welch or Robert Hillenbrand, writing on the Kutub, were influenced by cultural anthropology and semiotics. Yet, their basic position did not differ too much from the scholarship during the early 20th century. They too believed that the mosque was an unqualified celebration of its construction. Uh, the construction of the mosque, in other words, was a means to dismiss the beliefs of the native population. Uh, these scholars were looking for the native point of view, but found it altogether ignored or negated. What they did find was an aesthetic uh, which obsessed with comforting the conquerors. The structure ignored existing building types and twisted the local architectural techniques to accommodate an alien vision. Even though these scholars adopted a different methodological approach, they effectively strengthened the position that the mosque should be seen as glorifying the power or might of Islam. Now, where does this come from? This interpretation on the mosque as a means to celebrate the power of Islam stood on the shoulder of an existing tradition of understanding. This tradition of understanding um, emphasized the cohesive nature of the ruling class during the Sultanate. Scholars such as Nizami 
Habibullah or Nigam earlier wrote of this ruling class as uh, sharing a common value system bound together by uh, material interests, Turkish ethnicity and the religion of Islam. This common background of the ruling class, uh, these historians believed, had completely alienated them from the Hindus. Habibullah, for instance, described resistance to Sultanat as Hindu aggression, as though rule by Muslim, a Muslim, was the same as a Muslim state. Other historians, such as Irfan Habib, saw the ruling class as the primary exploitative class. Now, he did not see the principal contradiction between the ruling class and the subjects as based on religion. No, he saw it as a, a contradiction primarily based on class. And yet, if the two parties with opposite interests had already been defined and Muslim and Hindu, that is easily later equated with class, Muslims belonging to one class and Hindus to another, it tends to perpetuate the older histories of communal polarization, even though new histories do not talk of polarization along the fault lines of communities. Now, even Habib did not challenge that the ruling class was a cohesive body. Even if the hostility between rulers and the ruled did not follow from their religious difference, it was clear that they belonged to two different religions. Here, all exploiters happened to be Muslims and all the exploited Hindu. This collapse of class and religion left the question about the motivation of the ruling class somewhat, uh, somewhat puzzling. Even if the rulers were motivated by a desire to impose their political authority, mischief makers could yet claim that they were united by their religion. Now, all these scholars base their conclusions on a careful reading of contemporary texts, chronicles, and so on. Yet, as Kumar wrote, they probably did not pay enough attention to the fact that those texts or documents were probably written as a reflection of the intention of their patrons. In other words, if the ruling class during the Sultanate period appeared cohesive, as if they're speaking in a single voice, it was because members of that very class commissioned these chronicles. They would have preferred to be seen as a compact or a homogeneous group of uh, highborn. Here, Sunil Kumar made an important methodological point. Scholars of medieval India in the past followed a positivist method of reading. They generally trusted the Persian chronicles produced by court chroniclers. While they discounted the overflow of eulogy for the rulers, they by and large accepted the factual information in Persian chronicles. 
If the chronicles emphasize the religious zeal of the ruler, for instance, the historians generally tended to accept them as orthodox and conservative Muslims. Yet, there are other sources too, such as numismatics, archaeology, epigraphy, and a large number of chronicles in praise of Sufi saints. Now, these sources are not as comprehensive or systematic as Persian court chronicles. Historians therefore used to treat Persian court chronicles as um, a basic and comprehensive source material and consulted other sources as a means only to, to corroborating evidence to confirm what they had read in Persian chronicles or to dispute their reading of information in Persian chronicles. Typically, if these non-mainstream sources offered information, any information which uh, did not agree with uh, the Persian court chronicles, historians used to ignore such information as, uh, as a mistake or an aberration. Sunil Kumar decided to take these non-mainstream sources more seriously. He approached the Persian court chronicles with a prior assumption that they were composed with the purpose to impress particular conclusions on their audience. He was thus able to discover quite a few inconsistencies in that literature and proceeded then to understand those anomalies, those mysteries, those missing puzzles, clues really, uh, with help from non-mainstream sources of the kind I was talking about uh, in, in uh, a few uh, sentences uh, before this one. Now, Kumar here also um, had an original contribution to make about the nature of uh, the polity under the Delhi Sultanate. Now, this is a story which now um, explores in greater detail the evolving career of uh, the Delhi Sultanate um, along with a study of the spaces around the Qutub Minar complex. Um, it will talk about Sufi saints, it will talk about future sultans, it will talk about the changing degree of popular holiness or reverence with which um, the complex was uh, perceived over the next um, centuries really during the Mughal times and in the post-Mughal period. I'd like to take up that story in um, greater detail in another episode. That will be the second episode of the story about how to understand a history of the Qutub Minar complex through the eyes of visitors, also through the eyes of historians. Is there a history of Qutub Minar 
or Kutub complex possible that combines the impression of the visitors along with that of seasoned researchers and historians. Uh, more on how Sunil Kumar wrote about Kutub Minar and uh, the villages and the people around it in the next episode of History Chatter. Till then, this is Onirban bidding you goodbye. Do please tell us what you like or dislike about this or other episodes of History Chatter. And yes, please subscribe to History Chatter on the Epilogue Media website, Geo7, Spotify, Ghana, Hubhopper and Apple Podcasts. Goodbye and looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. More on Kutub Minar follows.